no, no. What happened? He hates bright lights. You know, there's some things I forgot to tell you guys, and they're really important. Number one, he hates bright lights. We know that. But you've got to keep him out of the sunlight. Sunlight will kill him. Number two, keep him away from water. Don't give him any water to drink. And whatever you do, don't give him a bath. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Greetings ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we unwrap the movies of Amblin' Entertainment like giddy children on Christmas morning, and where we never feed our mogwais after midnight. I am one half of your host, <laughs> Andrew Godian. I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. And joining us today is one of the hosts of the W-Rated podcast, the podcast that takes a look at IMDb's 100 Worst Rated Movies, Daisy Edwards. Welcome to Ramblin' Daisy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Very pleased very to have you to here. Have you on. Oh, thank you. Uh, we thought we'd give you, a, give you a break from chatting about <laughs> terrible movies and, and have, a, have a chat about a bona fide classic. Absolutely. You've got to have the balance there. Like, you can't have too much of a good thing, too much of a bad thing. It's nice to break up the, uh, the quite frankly, awful films with a stone classic <laughs> such as this. <laughs> I, I admire what you're doing there. <laughs> it's a, it's a, bit, a good uh, idea for a, a podcast. It's torturous, but um, the idea that we get to talk about these, there's so much to talk about with them, which is what's so fun about it. Yeah, so. absolutely. We'll get to a few ourselves eventually in the Amblin filmography, um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in I fact, think... your first episode. Yeah. It's a bit <laughs> of overlap, isn't there? It's already there? Yeah. one of them done, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, we'd l- yeah, looking forward to you guys uh, getting to that because I think, actually, in the grand scheme of things, it really wasn't a bad one. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, obviously, that classic. Yeah, uh, so I'm do, looking yeah. forward to uh, you guys getting into that and seeing what you think. I, I had that on VHS when I was a boy, so I was a big fan of that when I was about seven or eight. So let's the see how it The nostalgia definitely helps when it comes to things like that. Um, yeah. My co-host Claire hadn't seen it before, and I think that it was a lot more challenging for her, whereas I was just reliving my memories as a kid, which is uh, it did definitely uh, definitely help not make it so difficult, I think. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's a genuine, like, hardcore fan of the original one as well. I mean, at some (laughs) some point, I thought we'd turned turned into a Flintstones podcast because (laughs) we've been talking about it for so long now. Where it was one, it was the first film we actually dove into, like promoting it and ready, getting ready to go and releasing it. And now we're still getting people to listen. I'm like, wait, are we going to be talking about any other films? Because I feel like I'm just talking about the Flintstones. So we'll see. She's still very passionate about things that come up later down the line certain actresses such as Lindsay Lohan are on the agenda at some point as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. 
Yeah, looking forward to getting Claire in for the Flintstones, yeah. I think, down the line. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> resident, resident expert, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we've got you in to talk about Joe Dante's 1984 classic, Gremlins. And uh, like I, I think it's fair to say it's like a pretty stone cold Christmas classic for a lot of households, and I'm 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 sure many of us are very familiar with uh, the little green monsters. But uh, in case you're not, I'm going to hand over to Josh to give us the Gremlin ragtime. After you, Josh. Thanks, buddy. Uh, Gremlins begins following Randall Peltzer, who is a struggling, bumbling inventor. He's uh, moseying around Chinatown trying to find places to sell his useless wares when he's taken into an old antique shop by a young boy. Uh, he's shown around the various uh, mystical wares in this shop uh, when, he's, when he starts talking to the proprietor, an old gentleman called Mr. Wing. He tries to sell him some of his uh, useless bathroom buddy technologies uh, when he, his ear is caught by a nice little sing-song uh, coming from the back of the, of the shop. When he follows this sound, he finds that it's coming from a cute little creature called a mogwai. Uh, he tries to buy this, but the proprietor, Mr. Wing, refuses to allow him to buy it because it's, uh, it's, it's not for sale. It's not something he's willing to sell. Uh, Mr. Wing's son, grandson, though, decides they need the money, so he takes uh, Mr. Pelter to one side and sells it in a clandestine transaction. Um, Pelter returns home to Kingston Falls, um, where when it's Christmas time, and the whole small town is uh, decking itself out in various Christmas regalia. Um, Randall Peltzer's young son, Billy, who works at a bank alongside the very uh, cute Phoebe Cates, uh, on whom he is crushing, uh, he is given the gremlin, the Mogwai, a gift as a Christmas present, uh, whereupon he is told three things he must bear in mind never to do to look after the Mogwai. The three rules are, keep it away from light, especially sunlight, which will kill it. Do not let it come into contact with water, and above all, Never, ever, no matter how much it cries or begs, feed it after midnight. Okay, pretty, pretty straightforward, right? Not too hard mm-hmm. to, to follow those things. <laughs> uh, one day when Billy is showing off his fun new pet to a uh, local young boy, um, what's he called? Corey Feldman's character. Peter Fountaine, who, do we know why Billy's hanging out with a, 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 a young <laughs> 13-year-old lad? <laughs> I've always wondered this as well, actually. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe Billy was originally written as younger and then was aged up when Zach Galligan yeah. came on board and Corey Feldman was... You don't want to lose Corey Feldman at that point. No, Either way, he's, no. he's showing off uh, his, his new pet to, to his friend Corey Feldman. When Corey Feldman... He's not called Corey Feldman in the film, of course. <laughs> his name, as I just said, is... <laughs> Everyone should call him by his full name. Fountain. Yeah. In every film he's in, he's Corey Feldman. Uh, He he hastily knocks over a glass of water, which spills on Gizmo, the young Mogwai, uh, causing him to go into a a consonated pose of distress, uh, whereupon these little balls pop off him and develop into fully-fledged Mogwai of their own. Billy is now faced with a whole herd, a whole litter of, I think it's five or six Mogwai to look after as well. But there's something different about these ones. They're not quite as cute and sing-songy as the original Gizmo. Uh, so he seeks help from the local science teacher, trying to figure out what these things are, what makes them tick, why they might reproduce when they are um, covered in water. Uh, and through a series of um, mischievous antics, uh, the gremlins sever the connection to uh, Billy's alarm clock, meaning that um, 
it is actually after midnight, but the clock shows it as being before midnight, and Billy accidentally feeds these little creatures some little chicken wings, which causes them to go into a... What's the word they use? Pupil? Pupil phase? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they cocoon in these horrible <laughs> sort of reptilian gooey green eggs. gooey <laughs> egg things. Uh, and when these egg things hatch, they come out as fully formed, destructive, murderous monsters who then run roughshod over the peaceful town of Kingston Falls. Uh, Billy tries his best to... Billy, well, to be fair, it's not really Billy, it's Billy's mother. Billy's mother is the one who dispatches the vast majority of these mm-hmm. early wave gremlins, uh, leaving only Stripe, not Spike, as I keep trying to call him, leaving only Stripe uh, remaining. Being a clever little resourceful fellow, though, Stripe runs away to the local YMCA and submerges himself fully in the YMCA swimming pool, at which point Billy thinks, shit. Um, (laughs) this is pretty much the point of no return and this horde of murderous gremlins then takes over Kingston Falls and all sorts of wacky violent cartoon mayhem ensues and that's where we'll go to nice (laughs) I'm currently in my like childhood home and um, I was desperately like rooting around in the attic and in the storeroom trying to find the the gizmo teddy that I used to have, but I I'm I'm sorry to report I couldn't find him. Damn shame. I was so ready Aww. to so and ready to bring him out for the podcast. I actually do <laughs> have like a little one, but it's at my mum's at the moment, and I didn't bring it with me when I moved into my flat because I wasn't sure how much storage <laughs> space I'd have. And it's so annoying mm-hmm. now that I can't just go here he is. <laughs> I know I was so prepared. I like yeah. I think we even had like um I think the Furby we had growing up was a gizmo mm. Furby as they well. Did, yeah, they did yeah. make those, <laughs> didn't they? But uh, I think that says something for, like, Gremlins is a film I can remember from watching quite young, mm. um, it, it, from it either being on TV at Christmas. I remember having having it recorded off the TV from, like, a showing on Channel 4 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so it had a lot of the really gruesome bits <laughs> kind of cut out of it, mm. so I never saw, like, the, the microwave right, explosion right. Or, the, or, the, or the blender frappe um segments <laughs> until i got it on dvd yeah and you were like hold but, um, on a th- second what's happening yeah here? what is this <laughs> I don't remember. this, this is a whole different movie yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um what's a, your kind of uh history with the film daisy um i was pretty much the same i definitely think i watched the film probably way too young i remember my dad having the vhs of it and the the cover looked so terrifying to me as a kid mm. and obviously it had the 15 certificate as well and i'm like this is a hardcore mm. horror film but then at the same <laughs> time i'm i think when i was younger i must have seen definitely like the the edited version that was a bit more family friendly and i don't think as a kid i'd quite connected that they were the same film um maybe i only watched the first half when i was really young <laughs> my dad was like right that's the end <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah but uh, i de- yeah i definitely think that i watched it i still watched the whole thing when i was younger um and do you know what i think i was more terrified of the cover because when i was watching it i was so in awe of how cool this film was <laughs> that mm. i just i kind of just didn't i and yeah maybe like i say maybe i did watch the edited version but I, I don't remember ever being proper scared of it when I got to watch it because it's just so great. And I can't, I can't even name the amount of times I've watched it now since. Do you have a similar history, Josh? Yeah. 
Similar, I watched it when I was very, very young, probably too young as well. Because um, it, it is weird, I guess we'll get into the certification aspect of it eventually, but it was released as PG mm. in America and a 15 mm. over here, so it's kind of one extreme to the other. Um, but it, it kind of plays like a PG for the most part, aside from that, those bouts of cartoon violence. But we, mm. I, so I first discovered it in a, in a strange, very, very Amblin-esque way. Um, I, I grew up in, an, in a little village in a northern town called Rotherham, and we lived near a, a woods, and we used to go walking in the woods as a family of a weekend with our wellies and our winter coats and stuff. And we got chatting to this nice old lady walking her dog one weekend, and it transpired that she often walked past our house with her dog, um, you know, on a weekday walk. And they also came into discussion that I was very much into my films, and we were speaking of classic films that I hadn't seen. And she said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll lend you some of my video cassettes for you to, to delve into. <laughs> And then one day, um, we, we, we didn't even hear a knock at the door. We just opened the front door to find a bin liner full of old VHS tapes <laughs> on our doorstep. So we brought it in. And there was loads in there, but the three that stick out in my mind are the, the Tommy Cooper comedy, The Plank. I don't know if you guys have ever seen The Plank. He's basically got to carry... It's Tommy Cooper and someone else have got to carry a plank. Yeah. <laughs> kind of 1960s British slapstick, literally. The classic setup. Yes. <laughs> the other one was Batman Forever. And of the course. third one was, yeah. And the third one was Gremlins. And I remember, like you say, Daisy, that the VHS cover that, it's, it's the, mm. the, the sweet, gentle poster of Billy holding the box with the cute Mowgli in there. Is it similar with, uh, to the DVD? Yes, yeah. that's the one, that's yeah. The with one. with, uh, with yeah. the nasty Gremlin breaking through and writing in crayon, we're here on the yeah. top. And Love yeah, I so remember meta. vividly. I remember pulling this thing out of the um, out of the uh, of the bin liner. And when she described it in the woods, <laughs> sounds like a weird, a weird pretext to a thing. <laughs> when she described it in the woods, I thought the gremlins was kind of like a, a wombles kind of thing, or the clangers, oh. a cute little furry bunch of friends. But then I saw this little guy in the video cover. I saw it was fifteen, and I must have been. I was. It was in my old house, so I was, I was younger than ten. I must have been about seven or eight. And I was like. You guys are quite strict with what I can watch. Are you sure that I can watch this? And they said, "Yeah, it's fine. It's fine." And for some reason, um, they allowed me to watch it. And yeah, like you, Daisy, I watched it so many times over the years. It's a constant, at least once a year since then. At least every Christmas, if not, mm-hmm. you know, a few times elsewhere. And um, I think I, I was afraid of cat, as I've said in previous episodes. And I was definitely. I don't know if I was so much scared about by what happened, but there were some very, very upsetting things that happened in the mm. film. Like even when um, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Deagle, <laughs> the horrible mm. old lady, she gets killed on a stair chair. I was very upset by that. I was upset by the Santa Claus getting eaten with all the gremlins that are attached to his head. Oh, and then, yeah. of course, which I really want to delve into in, in a bit, the monologue about Phoebe Cates' dad yeah, <laughs> stuck in the chimney. That right, though, really upset me as a young boy. Distressing. Than, yeah, like, quote, yeah. I'm quite scary, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that, I, think, I think that might have been the first film that I was too young to watch that I ever saw. Um, and it was a, yeah, a Glenn family favourite. Yeah, it does feel like one of those ones where like, even though it does say 15 on the box, it's like, I feel like your parents will, if you ever bring up Gremlins, they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Watch that. I've seen that. That's fine. That's funny. <laughs> all, the only blood and guts that you see are green. In yeah. the movie. Yeah. It's not a like that, yeah. that affords you a lot in terms of screen violence, I think, when you're yeah. uh, mm-hmm. mincing up. 
puppets, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I think very much the case for me. But would you both also say that it was probably the first uh, Joe Dante film that you saw? Oh yeah, Ooh. absolutely. Ooh. Now we'll discuss this more. That a... or Small Soldiers, I think. Like. Mm. Small Soldiers was such a big movie for me. Yeah, see, it wasn't really much for me. I definitely have seen it when I was a kid, but I think, um, and I suppose maybe I did see it before, but I think it's one. it was one of those films where I kind of saw it, maybe it wasn't really my thing, and then I saw it at Gremlins, and it just kind of overtook any kind of consciousness of any mm, other yeah, yeah, films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do, I I do we'll... like Small Soldiers now as I got older. I'm excited to discuss mm-hmm. that one eventually. I think we'll talk about this in a couple of episodes' time, but Inner Space was inexplicably a huge one for me. I used to love shrinking movies when I was there. I still do love shrinking movies, <laughs> you actually. You say used. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, who am I kidding? Um, so I think Inner Space might have been my first Dante, but this was around the same time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of, like, get to use this as a springboard to go into Dante, I, like, in the context of his career, this is the one that really does propel him into the mainstream mm. uh, it's his first studio movie it, it was a big hit it made uh 212.9 million uh, <laughs> at the at the box office off a budget of 11 million which is a, a pretty decent return in in your early 80s yeah particularly when you come out on the same day as ghostbusters yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely good on him <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, to kind of go into if, if you'll humor me i'll go into the origins of dante oh please as it, as it were because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is uh one of the many many filmmakers who got their start working with uh the great roger corman at his new world productions and uh through films that he both produced and directed uh corman's quite infamous in hollywood uh throughout the 60s and 70s in particular for making lots of films that delivered high concepts for a very small price tag in the hopes that like the box office returns would like easily cover the kind of few hundred thousand uh, price tag budgets and which they very often did. Uh, so from like there were monster movies, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, post-apocalyptic death races and rip-offs of kind of like whatever was popular in the, uh, at the time. And uh, Corman particularly was known throughout this time for picking out uh, young, talented filmmakers who were like quite hungry to get their break in the industry, and uh, and he and he was quite keen to let them have the kind of platform to try out different techniques, just as long as they would come in under this uh, limited limited budget, as it were. And uh, along with Dante, like a lot of uh, some of the big names that kind of came out from working with Corman were uh, Martin Scorsese, some of his earlier movies were produced by Corman Ron Howard got, cut his teeth on Roger Corman movies uh, Jonathan Demme uh, started out with Corman and James Cameron started out there as well largely with special effects but also uh, Piranha 2 was his directorial debut which was a sequel to Joe Dante's first movie that he made uh, well first proper feature I should say that he made on his own with first Roger film Corman. on his own on it, yeah because mm. before that uh, Dante was largely working for Corman in an editing capacity where he, he cut a lot of the trailers for a lot of Corman's movies. And uh, the first film as such that he made um, was as a co-director and as an editor, which was uh, 1976's Hollywood Boulevard, 
which was a film very much made on a bet to see if he could make the cheapest film that New World Productions <laughs> had ever made. And <laughs> the way that he did that, um, I, so Josh can talk a bit more to this, because I, I know you, you've actually seen this one, but uh, he reuses, like, just basically clips from films that New World had already shot and yeah. <laughs> try to forge a narrative out of that. <laughs> it's very... It's Is that pretty, fair to say? It's, it's cobbled together with, with spit and glue, this movie. Yeah, wow. it's... it's, it's Set pieces, car chases, uh, shootouts, gunfights, wet t-shirt contests from different films <laughs> that measure. are hastily, yeah, uh, <laughs> stitched together by this vague narrative uh, about um, Candice Rielsen as a young would-be aspiring actress trying to make it in Hollywood and the various. I mean, it, it's kind of got a satirical bent to it. it some of that anarchic Joe Dante satire is in there. But also in there is, is a lot of recycled footage and a lot of gratuitous nudity and a lot of the stuff that those films are most associated with. <laughs> and yeah, so off the back of that, he made Piranha in 1978, which um, is just a good, like, kind of a very tacky ripoff of Jaws, which uh, <laughs> Universal themselves were trying to get banned from release because it came out at a similar time to when they were trying to push Jaws 2, so they didn't want this. Uh, tacky little rip-off movie kind of stealing the thunder but uh and the only reason it did end up getting a release was because spielberg himself had seen it and was quite uh quite positive and uh enthusiastic in his reaction to it so universal was just like okay <laughs> we won't try and block it from coming out anymore and um that that movie was a big hit because that made like what six sixteen million off of a seven hundred thousand dollar budget so that is like one of the like quintessential kind of Corman hits of that era, I would say. And uh, off of that, Dante and next movie was another cult horror classic. In 1981, he made The Howling, which is his first studio movie that, um, while it cost a bit more than Piranha, it was still only about one and a half million and made uh, made close to the, the same amount of money that Piranha made. So still still a good turnaround. And uh, it was only slightly hindered from uh, being a bigger success because it came out around a similar sort of time as An American Werewolf in London. Both films very much de- have this really cool uh, werewolf transformation as their kind of main centerpiece. And uh, the, the Howling still holds up. Like I mm. watched it again this week to in preparation for going back into Dante for this. And it like it, it really like both an effective horror movie and like you were saying with Hollywood Boulevard, there's still this kind of uh, satirical undertone that kind of shines through underneath all the kind of like werewolf horror yeah. antics that are going on. Particularly at the end, start, the final sort of five yeah. minutes of The Howling, it, it very much leads into what Gremlins does. Not to, not, let's yeah. not spoil anything. Go and watch The Howling if you're listening. It's very, it's good. It's, good <laughs> it's really good. And, uh, and then from that point, Dante had a bit of a, a dry patch in between like, the Howling and Gremlins, uh, and particularly when he got the call to direct Gremlins, he was down to his last few bucks, because despite The Howling making a profit, the company behind it had gone bust and out of business before the film's release and couldn't actually pay Dante for working on the movie. <laughs> so he was, a, he was a bit hard up by the time Gremlins came around, uh, to the point when Spielberg sent the script to Dante, because Spielberg had been a fan of both Piranha and the Howling, uh, Dante was convinced that uh, he had sent it to the wrong address. 
but the wrong address he did not send it to. And um, before before going into making Gremlins, he also worked with Spielberg to do a segment in the Twilight Zone movie in 1983. Um, and I, I don't know if any uh, for anyone who's seen the Twilight Zone movie, um, Joe Dante's segment in that, which follows a, a young babysitter who goes to stay with his family of who whose young son has these om- omnipotent godlike powers who and kind of change it who has the ability to change anything in his environment um to like the fear of his pa- his parents are absolutely terrified of him and this new babysitter is the only person who can kind of come in and reason with him it's uh one of the best segments in a otherwise fairly patchy movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's one I've definitely seen, but I, that doesn't sound even slightly familiar. Mm. It's really cool because there's like all, all the different rooms in the house eventually get changed by the little kid to represent different cartoons that he's really interested in. Oh, so nice. all, oh. They all become like a warped Looney Tunes environment. Oh, um, and it's also the first time he works with Jerry Goldsmith as well, who like really... like. You can tell feels impassioned by yeah. uh, <laughs> this kind of Looney Tunes approach, which mm. uh, very much signs through in what they end up making a whole career out of, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, so this is like comes off of working on Twilight Zone in '83 to go into Gremlins in '84. But I feel like it's also worth mentioning that the screenwriter behind Gremlins um, is Chris Columbus, who would go on to, of course, have bigger success as a director in his own right of uh, the Home Alone franchise and the first two Harry Potter movies to name but a few. So the guy clearly loves Christmas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all those are very quintessential Christmas movies yeah. for me. <laughs> One of which is, is the best Christmas film of all time. But uh, we'll... <laughs> I, like, it's mad to me that um, Columbus sold the Gremlin script to Spielberg when he was only uh, 23, fresh out of NYU. <laughs> and he wrote it as a spec script as well, just to, to prove to employers that he could write. He didn't expect it to go anywhere, did he? It was just, it was oh, more wow. of a calling card thing. But Spielberg saw it and liked it. Amazing. I mean, I imagine like writing something like Gremlins just be like to have as your kind of yeah. like yeah. proof of this concept. This is just a taste <laughs> of what I can do yes. rather than it be yeah. like, this is the best thing I've ever written in my whole life. <laughs> I'll never oh, write yeah. anything like this again. Oh, you like Gremlins, do you? Okay, fine. You want to make that? Well, where that came from. <laughs> um, I, to kind of go into his inspiration, he talked a lot about how he's talked a lot about how he, he would listen to troops of mice in his attic in New York, just kind of running around and how it, like just sitting there in the darkness and just imagining what was kind of behind those noises is a big a big inspiration as to what led into this script and like in terms of like gremlins on screen beforehand i think like kind of going back to like looney tunes uh linked to like dante is clearly a big cartoon fan throughout a lot of his work and like one of the like early cases of gremlins kind of appearing in other works is an old looney tunes cartoon from uh, the 40s, there was the Roald Dahl World War II story as well that Walt Disney nearly adapted. So, like, there's there's a lot to gremlins in kind of pop culture before these said gremlins get there. But I feel like, for me, they're like, I, I don't think I've ever really 
considered other gremlins aside from these gremlins. Yeah, these are the quintessential <laughs> gremlins. Yeah, these are the quintessential gremlins. <laughs> the They're our gremlins. In gremlinhood. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that kind of brings up to brings up to speed as to how everyone got involved and um so so what were like coming into this what was what what some of the first things that kind of struck you like revisiting gremlins for like the 100,000th time what what the sort of things that always jump jump out at you whenever going back into this i think the the thing that really jumped out this time was just how completely uh disingenuous a lot of the wholesome americana presentation Mm. is like the 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 town of Kingston Falls kind of uh, draws a lot on Bedford Falls and a lot of Capra esque um, small town Americana ideas. And I <laughs> there was this one little bit that I noted down that I wanted to, to talk about was when you first meet Mrs. Deagle and uh, she's walking into the bank and um, she's meeting some tenants who live in a, a a building that she owns and they say, oh, my husband and I have both got second jobs. We're trying our hardest, but we're not going to get paid for two weeks. Can we can we please get a, an extension on our rent payments? And Mrs. Eagle says, I'm I, I'm in instance to make money. I'm not a charity. And this lady says, Mrs. Deagle, it's Christmas. And she says, well, now you know what to ask Santa for, don't you? And then she walks away and there's a beat. And then this, little, this, this woman's son goes, Mommy, I'm hungry. And she goes, yes, honey, me too. <laughs> it's, just, it's such a ladling on of this uh, tugging at the heartstrings that it rings as completely, uh, completely sarcastic. And I feel like yeah. Dante very much had a, an axe to grind with regards to contemporary American social mores with this film. And he just he was setting all these things up just to hack to pieces later on. Oh, yeah, which, absolutely. Um, yeah. Which is great fun. Yeah, it's essentially yeah. like he was putting up a lovely picture of Kingston Falls just to throw darts at it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it does like literally open with that like really lovely kind of matte painting mm, yeah. shot of the whole town at, like with this beautiful blanket of snow across the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> For people not knowing what they're kind of getting into... It definitely lures you into a false sense of security, I yeah. think. And like yeah. you're saying, Josh, I think over time, as you watch it more and more, you realise what he's actually doing. Um, yeah. But it, even so, I think that's why it works well as as a Christmas film and as not as well. But um, it's that feeling of, oh, I feel really comforted by it. Then I'm mm. also comforted by it going completely cha- chaotic as well. <laughs> it just feels warm. And then when it all goes to chaos, I'm like, no, I'm I'm still quite comfortable watching this. I haven't haven't been put off by it, but the opening definitely it it creates this sense of wholesomeness and you know. And I think you know you said that you're not sure um, why Corey Feldman's character would be friends with Billy, and you just don't question mm. it because that small town feel and you yeah, know, everyone knows each other's name and that kind of thing. And I think that's the kind of backdrop that works for something like this because as much as the Gremlins are taking over, it still feels very contained. Yeah. Um, and so the stakes, like I've, I've spoken about this before, um, where I feel like sometimes we're so used to these huge superhero movies and things like that, where the stakes are so high that it kind of takes you out of it a little bit, or it's nice yeah. that it's like contained and you're watching it happen. It feels a lot more real, like that could happen in your local, if you were from a small town, especially. You can imagine that happening to your local town and kind of going, yeah. huh, that would be funny. <laughs> yeah like when the cops are driving around and they're surveying all the destruction and they sort of know everyone Mm. by name who's being attacked and often decide to not help them 
Uh, Andy looks to have frozen. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew? Can you hear us? apologize whenever <laughs> my <laughs> my house does a very weird thing that whenever the landline goes off the internet just goes <laughs> oh my god old school i know i know right it really shouldn't be this way <laughs> <It's 2021. laughs> so i can only apologize hey man that's um, okay Gremlins, Gremlins leave, the, leave all this in. Leave all of this yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's a bit of performance art. Yeah. I'll add the little like Gremlins. I'll add a little Gremlins chatter like. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, Did you hear Daisy's point, Andy? What, what point did we lose? You? I heard, I heard her saying it kind of leads you into this sense of full security. To be honest, I don't think yeah. For, for the benefit of you of what you want to say next, that's basically what the point I was making. And, and mm-hmm. if you were from a small town, especially, you could imagine it happening to your local town yeah. and how the, I think it's better to, I enjoy films more when they have stakes like that where it's contained as a, because I think it can become a bit desensitized when you have big action and superhero films where it's like, well, the whole world's going to end and you're like, well, I know it's not. Whereas mm-hmm. this is like yeah. your destruction that could genuinely happen if these creatures were to come to your local town. It's just a bit more tangible, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I fully agree. Like where I am right now is uh, on a uh, Oldney in the Channel Islands, and I I often think about like what would happen if so many <laughs> little critters got off got around on this island yeah. that's three miles long <laughs> like it would be destroyed in a matter of seconds yeah. <laughs> so much chaos would ensue <laughs> are there any neighbors that you long to see being chewed on by gremlins andrew <laughs> i i cannot comment not that i imagine they're listening to this but who knows <laughs> Um, I I was kind of like one of the main things that struck me this time around was um, kind of going off on your point, Josh, of the um, real kind of takedown of Americana that's going on here is um, how much I saw the dad as like this really like irritating figure of like <laughs> um, <laughs> American entitlement. Just, Absolutely. Like, yes. Yes. Like, and I felt so bad for Billy because it like, uh, Jed Reinhold's character kind of goes at him saying like you're supporting your family with your paycheck yeah because like his dad is like following off on this idea of the American dream that he can go out and succeed with these like harebrained <laughs> ideas without really having much demonstration of skill or talent <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my the, the, yeah I, I texted you watching it again this time because um, I'd realised just how much his par- Billy's parents are the MVPs of the film um, dad played by country and western singer Hoyt Axton and the mother played by the wonderful Francis Lee McCain uh, and, and yeah you're right he is this, this would be enterprising kind of like a Biff Lohman um, bumbling failed salesman type Yeah. and some of the funniest 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 bits of the film are when, 
when Billy really cautiously approaches uh, the egg machine or the orange juice machine or the coffee machine. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. When he approaches the orange juice machine, eyes. Yeah, the way that is so shot, funny. it's yeah. as if like that's the horror film because he just like looks yeah. over his shoulder yeah. and then there's the wide shot where it's just looming. It's in front of him and it's smaller than him, but it looks like it's looming over him. And I'm it's not so being funny, but like the way he acted in that scene, I was just like, this this kid is legit. Like he looks so yeah. terrified. Yeah. Really and there's that bit when uh, when Randall comes back. I think when he first comes back and he brings the Mowgli into the house for the first time and he says to his wife, uh, they, 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 they bought X amount of bathroom buddies. And uh, his wife goes, oh, so good, I'm so proud of you. And she gives him a hug. And then she kind of makes a sideways glance at Billy as if to say, Christ, Billy is still like, doing yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you're right. Like He's a... A... Not even a guaranteed sale as well. He's just like, yeah, hey, might yeah. be yeah. interesting. <laughs> I, do, I do actually like, though, when they, um, I think it was the coffee machine, actually, because I think in other films it could easily, like, they put it as like a bit of, um, like an argument of some kind just to build the tension somehow. But yeah. the fact that it doesn't work and they laugh about it. I Whenever yeah. I watch that bit mm-hmm. when he goes, what do you mean? What's wrong with this? And they both laugh. I'm like, that's actually yeah. really nice because it sets them up as a very loving family and supportive family. Whereas other films, yeah. I feel like they would just make it more tense by like making them argue with each other. And like that wouldn't fit with that theme that mm-hmm. they've got going of all this yeah. Americana suburbia kind of thing. But I just think it's a nice touch for their, that no, character interaction. Fully agree. Yeah, I, I love that D- Dante apparently has the juicer still in his garage (laughs) (laughs) oh fantastic ideas for a fantastic world i'll make the illogical logical (laughs) that that is a great line i love that it's just the way he like spills it off as well like he must have said it so many times and at right at the end uh when i'm really bad with names so i'm gonna forget all the characters names but when um our legend that owns the mugwai no, that Mr. Wing. Oh, Mr. Wing, and yeah. He comes yeah, back yeah. and and he offers him the smokeless ashtray. <laughs> and he says, Oh yes. Latest in technology. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> it was just perfect. Because he could have turned around and been like, I don't want this, and that would have fit very well with the character. But the yeah. way that they did it as if he was like, Oh yes, someone tried to give it to me. It's just a really nice touch that to to the dad he probably thought this is great word of mouth that's going <laughs> but actually yeah. the guy probably tried to palm it off on him because it's so crap <laughs> yeah cra- crappy american uh, but he accepted there. it and was just like oh yes latest word in technology thank you so much you're so grateful for it, it was so adorable and wholesome i love it yeah it's very sweet it's very sweet like, it's very sweet but i don't i it, like this time, it really played into the more cynical side of it mm. for me. This, He's probably like, brushing this, him off, this like, yeah, around. sure. <laughs> but particularly when, like, um, you see when Billy shows him that um, Gizmo's multiplied, and his first thought is to um, kind of think about how he can mass sell yeah. Um, yeah, this absolutely. new pet. And he, he even, like, eradicates the name Mogwai and just goes, the pelts of pet. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, dude. Yeah. And when he says, oh, it could even replace the dog as a family pet yeah. and the dog's reaction are amazing. Like I read it's, that he yeah. was the dog was like one of the best like 
uh, animal actors that anyone had worked with. And I was like, yeah, he, he was great. <laughs> I think like, he was definitely stole the show whenever he was in the scene. Mushroom. I fully I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mushroom. There have been a, a lot, a, 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 th- a continental divide aside, uh, Poltergeist, E.T. and this have all had exceptional dog performers in them. Really good performances yeah. by dogs. It's a, it's a nice... <laughs> And we should have the dog Oscars. Quite, yeah. <laughs> the dog, the dog I'm quite yeah, enjoying seeing these little, these little through lines that are coming through from different Amblin movies of like little uh, little things that keep popping up in every mm. single one of them. And I'm really enjoying that one of the main ones so far is a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but to, to, to build on what you said, Andy, about Peltzer being this kind of bumbling well-meaning kind of well-meaning idiot pursuing the amount his what he sees as the american dream he kind of like he's kind of a stand-in for this american monoculture and how that absorbs everything in its path with scant regard for what underpins these traditions and these cultural um artifacts and stuff so like he is trying to sell his tat in chinatown at the very start and he his attention is caught by this thing he has absolutely he's never seen it before doesn't know what a mogwai is Incidentally, Mogwai is Cantonese for devil. Does he know that? Absolutely mm. not. He's no idea what he's buying. He just <laughs> he sees a new thing. He wants it. Uh, he tries to throw money at this thing so he can absorb it into his would-be capitalistic empire. Um, and as a result of of you know throwing money after this thing and acquiring it and and assimilating it into his own uh, household, it causes untold destruction because of this greed and this carelessness. <laughs> Um, mm. And it's no, it's no coincidence that once these, um, this uh, sort of delicate Chinese creature that this guy doesn't understand, once it starts literally feeding on American produce, it becomes this base, gluttonous, murderous creature. <laughs> and it kind of, <laughs> the, it, it just seems to me like this takedown of this very '80s idea of American exceptionalism. This, this idea that. Mm. Um, American, American made is best. American culture is the culture, and well, it's it's the, the that's American, the neighbor, the, right? Exactly yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, all yeah, of the yeah. machinery. He always constantly says, "Oh, you wouldn't get this with American made, and all of these yeah. foreign cars mm-hmm. and all of this." And yeah, absolutely. That's that seems to be a very key theme, and it was interesting yeah. watching that and, and seeing that come out a lot more this time. Yeah. And he's literally hoisted, well, not literally hoisted by his own petard. He's killed by the, the gremlins in his own machine later on. Yeah. Dick Dick Miller, Dante regular. Yeah. Love it whenever I see Dick Miller pop up in a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, kind of going back to that point, as soon as, like, Gizmo's copied, it's instantly a kind of more, like you say, a, a worse version yeah. of uh, the kind of original more pure mm. uh base point of origin and I, I i always feel like so bad for gizmo whenever i watch I this movie <laughs> his little poor face. little giz yeah. <laughs> like it what that first moment where water's spilt on spilt on him and uh five more pop up and there's such like a distraught worry in his face i, I just know. always think how many times has this happened to him? <laughs> right? That's what I wonder. Because there's like something in his eyes that says this has happened before. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. not like a complete shock. It's kind of a bit of a like, oh no, this is happening again. <laughs> oh no. no. Again. 
<laughs> yeah. His reaction shots, though, considering he's a puppet, are yeah. just unreal. Mm-hmm. My one of my favorite reaction shots of his is when the uh, the other Maguire are eating all of the chicken so disgustingly, and mm-hmm. he he looks from the bed because he's very much a pet that is like the best friend of Billy and he sits there and he reads comic books with 3D glasses on and he watches TV and he mm. looks down at the other the other Mogwai like who are on the floor in a box and they're all eating and he just goes Ugh. and it is the funniest <laughs> yeah. thing wow. to me that he does that like look at you peasants <laughs> on the floor <laughs> animals <laughs> I'm sophisticated on the bed <laughs> I'm watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers <laughs> <laughs> I'm cultured <laughs> But I do love, like, even how far that extends to the musical themes that are attributed to both Giz mm-hmm. and even the, yes, more so when they're the full-bodied green gremlins. But, because, um, like, this is this is one of my favourite Jerry Goldsmith scores, and mainly because of that kind of, both that parallel he has from this, like, beautiful melodic uh, Giz theme that also doubles for Billy and Kate's love theme and then this like completely anarchic staccato mm. um but also incredibly funny gremlin score that he's oh, yeah. that he's got going for for these guys it's, it's one of it and like even like extending to uh other characters in the film like mrs deagle's theme being this like really weird <laughs> yeah. synth <laughs> nefarious synth score that's just like honestly every time it she says she's gonna get the dog it. I just quote Wizard of Oz <laughs> yeah. in my head they're gonna get you and your little dog too I'm like you might as well have just yeah, said that just, come on Chris just put it in the script we know that's what you want <laughs> so just do it <laughs> I'll give him a long slow death oh my heart <laughs> she's so good at turning it on and off yeah. So, and like even good. to the point where in her death scene her feet sticking out of the snow looks like the wicked witch. Yes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> underneath the house as well. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. And that's the thing it does it paints these things in really broad highly stylized strokes. Like it's a very very cartoon world. I don't think mm. it, it has that familiarity and it has that that low key small scaleness that you're talking about Daisy, but I don't think for a second it it would claim to be going for some kind of slice of life realism it's very very heightened and and cartoonish which i think is what allows it to go from this capra-esque christmas movie to this gnarly b-movie um creature feature in the second Mm -hmm. half yeah the uh the wholesome kind of small town vibes is basically just this wrapping on the outside to make you think that's what it is (laughs) a flimsy (laughs) facade i just love i love also any movie in which the the movie is trying not to be what it becomes and there's this foreign body that's brought in that that veers everything drastically off course and it's like the people in the film aren't equipped to deal with this thing yeah it's trying to morph it into something else i think that's a lot of fun <laughs> do you guys think that you could uh adhere to the rules of owning a mogwai because like no, I've got a bone to pick I here, which it... I think everyone does okay <laughs> yeah. it's always after midnight <laughs> Always. It's always after midnight somewhere. It's always yeah. after, even like here, like as soon as it turns midnight, okay, it's after midnight. Now it's after midnight yesterday. So like, when do they? Yeah, yeah. But I did read that there's a theory 
that it's like until sunrise which makes sense but if you're going to be really yeah, strict I about these rules that. you need to kind of like just make sure that there's no sort of <laughs> questioning around them but I think that's what I love about it is that it doesn't quite make sense and then mm-hmm. in the second one yeah. and Joe Dunphy said as well they do make fun of that which is yeah. great yeah. and that's mm-hmm. that's why he's great as well so yeah I think there's that weird kind of fairy tale logic to Mm. it as well where it's just kind of like you are kind of intrigued by these like strange mysterious rules what could they mean yeah what happens (laughs) when you break them yeah but i do i think they do yeah set that up in a really good way that obviously it's building and and you would do because of the type of story it is but yeah the way that you set Mm -hmm. them up they all have their own payoff and they all raise the stakes each time and as much as you when you're watching it you know what's going to happen when they turn to gremlins i think like you say, the way that uh, Gizmo reacts to when he, like, even just the bright light, you're like, oh, bless him. Like, just turn <laughs> yeah. all the lights off. Like, make him comfortable. And it's just like, you're you're not sitting there waiting for the gremlins to come. That in itself is still interesting to watch. And the way they build mm-hmm. it up, I think is done very well. Yeah, I think part of that is just how, like you say, you kind of go into how good this puppet is at oh, reacting yeah. to everything yeah. <laughs> he's such a cute puppet <laughs> so cute, so cute. And it, you only need to kind of like look at the craze around like baby yoda now oh, to kind of yeah. still see the yeah. kind of influence of gizmo on, Absolutely. <laughs> on, li- on little critters everywhere <laughs> it's such a smart move i was i was reading into uh, the, the fellow who designed the puppets chris is it w- wallace how do you pronounce his name? Yeah, I think Wallace. Chris, I think it's Wallace. Chris Wallace. Wallace. Because <laughs> the, the puppets were so small, they kept malfunctioning, and the, the crew started to hate uh, Gizmo, which is why they have. <laughs> it's why they got the scene in the film when uh, the the nasty gremlins are throwing darts yeah. at him, and um, this this guy recommended that Dante make the model bigger, but Dante doubled down and said, "I think it's really important that Gizmo stays small because smaller is cuter, and we we need to keep the right. cuteness mm-hmm. as yeah. one of his uh, crucial tenements." And that was, I think, a really smart move to make. Yeah, absolutely. I read I also so. that um, originally in the script, uh, Gizmo was going to turn into Stripe mm. as the gremlin. Mm. Um, and then they decided, I think actually it was uh, Steven Spielberg that uh, wanted it differently because he wanted, again, for any kids watching or merchandising opportunities to keep Gizmo as the good guy and be the hero of the story. And um, and that I read that that's why a lot of the second half of the film, Gizmo doesn't have as much to do, um, and he's very much being carried around a lot more. Yeah, and that's yeah. why he's in the car, which I think is genius because it's like you've done something <laughs> yeah. where he's just in one spot, so you only have to like move his eyes and like his head. But I think that's one of my favorite parts of the film when he's driving around in that little car and he's like imagining his yeah. car. Yeah, like, I think that's genius. <laughs> It's very easy. Listen, Gizmo's a cool guy. He's a yeah. cool guy. He's got taste. He's, he's my good friend. I want to hang out with him. I want to watch movies with Gizmo. Yeah. He's a good guy. He's a good boy. <laughs> on the on the flip side of that, though, I've always found like the gremlins themselves really fun company. <laughs> I think they're hilarious. Especially, yeah, especially in the bar scene when poor Phoebe Cates, whose character has two jobs to make ends meet. Yeah, they, they take over the bar that she's working at. <laughs> I that do whole think it's scene... hilarious how she continues to serve them, though, rather yeah, than yeah, yeah. Up the door. I mean, it wouldn't be as funny, like, but... How have they made you stay here? That's what's so funny about it, that she's overrun by trying to, like, serve them as if, as if she has to yeah. stay. That's what's yeah. so funny about it. And that whole scene is, is kind of like Dante 
trying to curb his Looney Tunes impulses to a point and trying to contain them within one scene, which, of course, that, that scene is such a, a sign of where things are going to go in the sequel, which you watched, Daisy, didn't you, in preparation I did, for, for the first time, actually. Was it your first time? What did you yeah, make of it? I'm, I haven't seen oh, it in I such abs- a long time. I absolutely loved it. It is very different um, to the first film in a good way, I think. And yeah. I didn't realise that it was directed um, by Joe Dante as well. And... Um, has uh, Zach Gilligan and uh, Phoebe Cateson as well so I really like that they managed to kind of like keep people on board and that's always a bonus and uh, it's just it's scaled up but it it, because it's based in a building it's still very contained as well and I think they just yeah it's a smart move yeah I think they took what was great about the first film and kind of just ramped it up so Mm. that it wasn't trying to recreate the first film it was just trying to do the first film but on steroids (laughs) (laughs) that's what i loved about it it just was so mental and i think things like the talking gremlin it just went so far (laughs) but that's what i loved about it whereas the first film i love in a very different way i definitely think that i will 100 watch gremlins 2 as well just as much now because it's it's kind of the same concept but just a slightly different take if he because he mm-hmm. could because obviously it was a, such a success he could go right I'm really gonna ramp things up now yeah if this you, is what if I really thought he did it before he did now yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm so excited to get to that one Andy we're gonna cover it in a few I think it's what six years in oh, yeah, Amblin well, time it's six years in Amblin movie time yeah. <laughs> uh, there's quite a few quite a few films in between yeah, <laughs> yeah. very very busy mid-80s they had uh, but I'm yeah. very <laughs> But the, the the bar scene is very much it's him practicing some of the things he's gonna really go to town with in the sequel. You got the flash dance gremlin, you got yeah. the jazz gremlin. Oh, yeah. The pop culture gremlins. references are just yeah. and it's just do you know what? So I think nowadays it's so hard to do right because everyone thinks that's a shortcut to making something funny. Like on our podcast, mm-hmm. we've got to go through a lot of parody films. As you can imagine, yeah. a lot of them are some of the worst rated. And what we're finding is they a lot of people just use a, a, a parody or a reference and they just copy it. And that's not what's funny. But the fact that they've got the gremlins doing it, it's just it's just genius. And the way it's all uh, cut together, um, it's absolute chaos. And then one of my favorite bits is when they're on the little table and one of them's smoking. It's like a film noir. And then yeah. the other gremlin comes over and, <laughs> as a puppet, has his own puppets on his hand <laughs> and tries to make the other gremlin laugh. And I'm like, this is like Gremlinception. I have no idea what's going on or what film I'm watching, but I, I, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Imagine the puppeteer having Good to be fun. like, right, yeah. this gremlin that you're your pup- puppeting right now is also got two puppets on his hands. <laughs> He'd be like, okay. <laughs> so much fun yeah you're right Andy they're a good time they'd be a fun night out wouldn't they yeah oh absolutely and even even when they're like all sat watching Snow White as well that he just like keeps cutting to all these like little different moments of personality and that I think my my favourite they all have their own personality and that's that's brilliant because it's all about the detail and it's done so well and with such care and love and like passion as well um, that you can really see that in the film I think my favorite my favorite gremlin is the one who's got the popcorn bags on his ears and he's just going absolutely laughing maniacally <laughs> while I was watching Snow White. <laughs> it's a bit I don't know if you guys I did read a little bit about why they chose Snow White, but it seems a little bit of a tenuous link about the fact that when it came out it was released as a big Christmas event. 
and because the film was Gremlins is set at Christmas, they wanted to do that. But to me, I was like, oh, I feel like there's probably a better reason, but I don't know if it was uh, yeah, no, anyone's I, revealed I, that or not. I was equally, I was equally kind of like, because that was the only detail I could find as to why Snow White was picked. And I like, because it does feel like a, a strange choice. And I was tr- like trying to like really boil down into like, so why Snow White? What is the yeah. reason here? And I, I just wonder if it's no reason. just he because... Just funny. Yeah. Whether <laughs> it's just like these gremlins are so become so enamored with like this like really pure innocent yeah. film and oh, the, yeah. they're kind of like yeah uh yeah the the contrast of that works yeah like, both for a humorous effect and and to also just make these creatures a little more in a weird way relatable yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah because i think <laughs> they, it's so much funnier than watching something grab. like that than if they were to be watching something that was just as chaotic as they are yeah, the contrast would have been yeah. yeah. The fact that it's so contrasting, it makes it funny. If they're watching Evil Dead, uh, that that's you know, you, it's not really very funny. You'd expect that. Of course, they're gonna like summarize. Yeah, like, they're yeah, Snow White. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the incongruity is hilarious. And then, of course, like at, at, at the same time as as this incongruity, you've got <laughs> you've got Phoebe Cates' um, monologue about why she doesn't like Christmas <laughs> at all, which <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is something. Can, can I can I in, will you indulge me? And let me read the whole thing out. It only yeah, if okay. you do your best Phoebe <laughs> Cates impression. You've <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> got to stare off wistfully in the corner as you speak. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Imagine Silent Night playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> the worst thing that ever happened to me was on Christmas. Oh, God. It was so horrible. It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and Mom were decorating the tree, waiting for Dad to come home from work. A couple of hours went by. Dad wasn't home. So mum called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. So the police began a search. Four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I, I went to try and light up the fire. And that's when I noticed the smell. The firemen came and broke the chimney top, and, and me and mum were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird. And instead, they pulled out my father. He was dressed in a Santa Claus suit. He'd been climbing down the chimney. His arms loaded with presents. He was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck. He died instantly. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. Which is, <laughs> which is absolutely... It's just, it's just psychotic. <laughs> It, it's 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 so it's so good reading, man. Good reading. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Very dramatic wanted, reading. Loved it. I've always wanted to do that. But to, the fact that this was in a movie, a PG movie marketed for kids, it's like Joe Dante thought. What are, what's what's the combination of things that's gonna scar a child the most? Not only is is he front loading the fact there's no Santa Claus, but that that I can't yeah. think of anything more upsetting. It's such a, a horrifying scenario. And then what's so yeah, imagine Yeah. Imagine this being the reason you found out that there was no Santa Claus when you were a kid. Yeah. Like just sat there watching this film. <laughs> yeah. It's like hold up. <laughs> what absolutely killed me what absolutely killed me this time amidst this horrible, like um grotesquely mean spirit of monologue. It can- it keeps going to Gizmo, who's doing these comedy reaction shots, like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. After she says they pull out my fire, he's just like, oh. Yeah, considering, like, 
considering Gizmo oh, is, boy. you know, uh, not human or English, he yeah. seemed to uh, follow the yeah. story and the emotional, you know, yeah, absolutely. gravitas very well. <laughs> It's, it's so funny. I, I remember this really, really, really upset me as a kid, as as it would for any. I, I think as it's designed to do so. But yeah, you know, the, the more you watch it, the older you get. I do think the more hilarity it takes on because it's such oh. a horrible thing to be there it's in so the middle. Of this. And I yeah, I can't remember what happens afterwards, but it definitely just goes right. Let's keep yeah, going yeah, with the yeah. film. Like, there's no. Yeah. You're just kind of like, that. wait, what? Okay, I guess we'll keep yeah. going then. <laughs> Let's go deal with this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice pit stop, you know. Let's move on. Yeah. And then she seems, you know, she doesn't seem to be too broken up about it after that. Once she's got it off her chest, mm-hmm. she can she can carry on. Blow up yep. the cinema. Um. <laughs> I know it was a, a big thing that, like, Dante, apparently one of the only things that Dante and Spielberg would ever fight over with this movie was whether to keep that scene in. Yes. And I, I get why. <laughs> yeah, who, absolutely. Who wanted it and who didn't? Dante really wanted to keep it in. Right. But Spielberg was there. Really, really did push. But in the end, he was like, you know what? It's yours. Yeah. 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 I, you, you go ahead. I wonder, what, I wonder what they think now about whether it was the right yeah. choice or not. I'm sure that they do because it's got so revered by everyone now. <laughs> yeah. And even going back to like the second one, there's a whole spoof of it as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was watching it going, no, no, surely they're not going to do this again. Surely not. <laughs> and the fact that they, <laughs> Billy's in the back, like, come on, like tapping his, <laughs> tapping his wrist, like, come on, we don't have time for this. That I think was more, like just watching him in the background, being like, not again. We can't do this again. It was really funny. <laughs> but it's nice to hear that Spielberg did give Dante his ultimate. Mm sign off on this yeah. as opposed to forcing his his way because it, it does mm-hmm. I, I guess it shows what a creative force Dante was at this point and um, and yeah I had... it's one of the added elements that made this film such like a big uh, component of the argument in the early 80s to, to establish the PG-13 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rating this and Temple of Doom were the two yeah, yeah. Uh, main examples that were held up going, we need something else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These films are too intense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's crazy. And, and Andrew, what was the first movie released uh, with the PG-13 rating? You probably know. I can't, rem- I can't remember this now. Twas me. Red Dawn. Red Dawn? <laughs> Which I, I've... Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the weird thing is, this was in 1984. Before this happened. When was Red Dawn 84 yeah. 85? It might have been tail end of 84. Yeah. I, I, either I way. can't remember. 84 85. And then in the UK, the, the similar 12A certificate didn't come along mm. until 2002 around mm. Spider-Man's release. Yeah. When that was deemed... Uh, so I think some boroughs demo, like, declassified that to a PG because it was kid-friendly. But that kick-started the whole 12A discussion. And then... Mm. Do you know what the first 12A film was, Andy? I'm sure, I think... I think you've told me the Born Identity, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> ah, but it's, yeah, it's weird that it took 18 years for us to do the thing that America did. Yeah. But in the I think it's because, like, in America, it only used to be G, P, G, R. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so over over here, yeah. you've always had, like, from the 80s, you had U, P, G, 12, 15, 18. Mm. So there wasn't really as much of a, of a need. It's just, with the 12, it was more of a conversation about, like, well, younger kids do also want to see these 12s how do we open yeah. it up yeah. in a way that's still kind of okay so they just made it 
it, it's kind of a different reclassification in a way. Yeah, I suppose that's true. More, more, more to open it out rather than to restrict more. Yeah, yeah. But then the, the American rating system, every, everything up to it, including R, is kind of a, ultimately a PG because people younger than 17 can still mm-hmm. see an R movie as long as they're with someone who's over 17. The only oh. thing that they have that's prohibitive is the NC-17, which is kind of, you might as well not release your film if you're going to have one of those. Which, which confuses me because R sounds like the most... I don't know why, but I've always thought the R-rated was... It sounds intense, most... right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. MPAA is weird, man. <laughs> they just do what they want. No yeah. logic. Yeah, they, they, they do. there's a documentary called This Film Has Not Been Rated, which delves into the makeup yeah, of the MPAA. And have you seen that? No, it's, I haven't yeah, seen it, just... but I want to watch it. Yeah, it, it's good. Mm. It shows what a weird institution the MPAA mm. is. And uh, Do they talk about gremlins? <laughs> the prop... They, they. I don't suppose they couldn't. They, they, I guess they have to. It's a, it's a crucial one in their yeah. evolution as an institution. Um, but yeah, the classification system fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of like I've just remembered a point I wanted to make. Kind of coming back off what one of the things that you said, Daisy, that the gremlins are kind of always the figures that kind of bring in all the pop culture references. And um, this, this. I think I'm right in saying this is the first Amblin movie that we've had that references other Amblin things, and it's largely through the the Gremlins themselves as well, because they like when they're taking down the phone lines, they go phone home yeah. and rip out the cords, and there's yeah. even the repeat of the um, hiding in the teddy yeah. bears gag yeah. from ET. Stripe does that and it actually pushes past the, the yeah the ET, ET doll, doll yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think you're right. I think. You're right. And there's even Indiana Jones references as well, so <laughs> maybe it's not so weird that Steven Spielberg made Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord, we're going to cover that eventually, aren't we? Yeah, man. <laughs> oh boy. Well, um, uh, I I'm just looking over my notes here. One of my notes is literally just Jonathan Banks, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> young, sexy Jonathan Banks. It's just such a random cast of like. That in Gremlins, made up of like you've got your fresh space, Zach Galligan, you've got your kind of eighties um, sweetheart and Phoebe Cates, and then you've got the likes of Jonathan Banks, who of course come up would later be best known for playing Mike in Breaking Bad. This is one of like his weird kind of like early roles, and then you've also got all the bit players, like well some of the bit players that Dante brings in from yes. his Corman yeah. days. Um, and he loads it with cameos as well. Uh, Chuck Jones pops up the uh, animator behind a lot of classic Looney Tunes. He gives a good comment on uh, Billy's cartoon that he's drawing in the bar. Um, always feel weird that like Judge Reinhold is in this, despite yes. the fact like he <laughs> he must have been quite a significant name in the eighties. But apparently, and I did read like that. Yeah, yeah, there was a whole subplot yeah. where he joined them along for all the antics, but they took him out, which. Uh, I guess it, like he's not needed. No. I was say, when I read that, I wondered how they would make it work. Because I was like, well, they already have so much going on that I yeah, feel like they yeah. probably mm-hmm. have to get rid of more of the gremlin stuff, which I would not want. So. No. <laughs> is mm-hmm. is the am I correct in thinking the last time we see him is in the bar when he's trying to hit on Phoebe Cates and she's like, no, I've got I'm washing my hair yeah, or whatever she's saying. I think so. Do we see him after that? Um, no, yeah, I can't even think of him at the bank no. again before. It's a bit strange uh, where you, you don't see what happens to him or uh, Corey Feldman's character. I can't remember his name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Firing his slingshot. 
you get um you know that the 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 teacher ends up being killed by the gremlin that he um he is ex- uh, taking blood from and experimenting on etc but there never seems to be any closed loops on some of the other supporting characters that seem to play quite a big role at the beginning um which obviously is because they rewrote it but you'd think that maybe they would have put something in like just a line here or there to say what happens yeah yeah you don't but Mm. i don't think the film's the film misses anything by doing that yeah Um, but when you've watched it quite a few times you start to start to notice uh yeah what happened to them and then the, on the flip side, two two people who um, unambiguously are killed, Dick Miller and his wife, actually turn up in the sequel when it turns out, oh, oh no, they weren't. Well, <laughs> Apparently on the newscast, they mentioned that they didn't actually die. Oh, did they? Okay. But I didn't hear ah, that. I didn't hear no, that. I, didn't it was hear anyone, that I only read about it. And so when I was watching Grand Steel, I was like, <laughs> wait, did I miss something? Wait a second. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, there's not actually that many fatalities. Like, Mrs. Deagle's the only one who gets, like, a, the, like, confirmed yeah. on-screen death mm. really <laughs> i guess we're, Even so, we're led to believe it's very ambiguous this... isn't it like yeah yeah just that <laughs> santa, the, the santa claus fella who's getting mauled by gremlins when the cop uh, police car drives by uh he looks like he's getting killed i yeah. it, it, it looks like he's screaming in agony and the police are like oh no no protect and serve no let's protect and serve ourselves <laughs> elsewhere protect and, then, and swerve uh, oh that actually <laughs> brings brings up another point that i noticed like this is a, another Amblin film where, like, police and a, a lot of other, a lot of other older authority figures are shown to kind of be completely useless, and like mm. one of the only people yeah. that is quite, quite good at dealing with what the situation is going on is either the younger characters or the mother figure. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, like, my favorite scenes in the whole thing is the "Do you hear what I hear?" Oh, sequence yeah. when the gremlins <laughs> yeah. are first hatched. And the mum's having to dispatch him in the kitchen. Oh, brilliant! She, like she's so good. <laughs> why didn't oh, they? Br- why man. did he drop her off at the doctor's? They, like Billy needed her to yeah. come out and help Absolutely. him take out. <laughs> just when you think the blender's <laughs> like the best kill, she then just yeah. chucks one in the microwave and just. <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely. I am um, back in one of the previous lockdowns. I think it was the first lockdown. I uh, I delved. I'd never seen any Albert Brooks movies, so I watched a few of his early movies. And she is one of the main characters in real life, his first film, alongside um, Charles Grodin. And she is so funny in that movie. And I didn't quite appreciate just how much she brings to this until this watch through now. Yeah. But her reactions, the business she's doing in the background of shots, the looks that she and Billy have when they're talking about the father's yeah. inventions. Like you say, her, what, her behavior in that scene is completely wordless. It's all in the eyes and her stature and the way she moves. She, she, yeah, to me, she's the MVP. I absolutely love her in this movie. And I think she's great. And yeah, that's all I have to say absolutely. about that. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was very shocked to read, like, in the original script that Chris Columbus had. He had a moment where the when Billy comes home, the gremlins greet him by throwing down yeah, his yeah. mother's yeah. decapitated head. And I'm like, Jeez. oh! <laughs> no, I mean, I'm glad that's not no. there yeah. anymore. <laughs> I, I, I forgot that the Christmas tree gremlin strangles her as well, and that was upsetting enough. So to, to see her, um, to have seen her decapitated, it would be horrible. I'm pleased that didn't happen. And apparently they killed the dog in the original yeah. script as well. Don't kill the dog, no. man. <laughs> Never kill the dog. It's funny to me, watching Gremlins as it is, that they actually reined it in. 
at some point. Yeah, no. <laughs> yes. There was a meaner movie. <laughs> uh, the, the scene with the mum, it's, it's interesting when I watched it uh, the other day, I was like, this kind of sets up a lot of the really good horror elements of some of like more mm-hmm. recent really good horrors like The Conjuring and things like that with the record player. Oh, it's Insidious actually. Uh, maybe both. Maybe James Bond. Oh, like, yeah, stick it, yeah. Stick it in both. Maybe both. But like the record player, <laughs> the fact that it looks like something's moving in the stocking, they're all kind of the kind of tropes that work really well uh, now. And I was just like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm quite impressed that they've included that in here. Because obviously there is, you know, it's a horror comedy, but it's not really horror horror. But that felt really tense. And I think that was probably one of the best scenes that yeah. was a bit more of, of that genre. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agree. Like, it's one of the sequences that best combined, like, because even like just having the Do You Hear What I Hear track going along with it is like both insanely kind of like really creepy yeah. but also really yeah, funny <laughs> it's like like perfect one of those per- perfect scenes that encapsulates the film's sensibilities yeah. I, I do agree with you there and even like the like the red eyes of the gremlin glowing out of the christmas yeah. tree as well it's such like a completely broad horror element but in the in the kind of like context that it's being played out with it's still it's both tense and really funny mm. at the same time yeah it's funny I thought it's funny if you think about E.T., e- e- the Amblin sandwich, E.T. is the meat and the bread is poltergeist and gremlins. And E.T. is about this little supernatural um, extraterrestrial visitor who comes in and kind of helps helps the family unit heal. And then this and poltergeist are about how the American family unit is kind of, the, 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 the sanctity of the American family home is destroyed by these... Um, foreign bodies who weren't properly yeah. appreciated by the dominant culture and uh, the destructive powers of American ignorance is quite it's quite uh it's quite an interesting back and forth between Amblin's yeah. sensibilities between that subversion and that uh more naked sentimentality I guess it's like the the difference between a uh, produced by yeah. Steven Spielberg and directed <laughs> yeah. by Steven Spielberg. It's almost like it's, yeah, because it's funny because Spielberg, one of his early prodigies was Zemeckis, and Zemeckis has a much much darker mean streak than Spielberg, and we'll get to talk about that in the Back to the Future and Roger Rabbit episodes. Um, but it's almost like Spielberg knows his limit after 1941 and his failed comedy foray. He kind of knows what he can and can't do, and he knows. Um, his skills as a filmmaker and he can't really mm. do broad comedy and he can't really do the mean spirited stuff so it's like he outsources that to his mm. uh, to his disciples smart move smart yeah. move because he clearly is passionate and loves this kind of film but if he knows that he's not going to be the one to make it work the best but he can work with talent that he basically is puts into the mainstream and gives mm-hmm. them their rightful sort of place in the industry i think that was not only smart for him but mm. obviously supporting other filmmakers as well, rather than just going like, I like this, I'm going to give it a go. You know, I'm not the best. Yeah, but yeah. He yeah. still gets to be a part of it and still gets to, and that's why it's mm-hmm. doubly interesting that he let uh, Joe Dante make a lot of the creative decisions because mm-hmm. clearly it's probably something that he wanted to do himself, but he knew that he couldn't or wouldn't have done it justice. So I think especially in light that. of, Definitely, yeah. Especially in light of the poltergeist conversation, uh, not to relitigate that. I think that's been put to bed decisively now by us. Um, it, it, yeah, it, uh, the, the the creative decisions uh, being made by Dante primarily is quite an interesting evolution. I would agree, and like as we kind of said in that 
episode as well, like how much Spielberg is a brand. Mm. And like you say, Daisy, he's using that brand to allow other filmmakers to, who he's clearly watched um, titles that he's, he's seen their previous work and he's liked their, liked their work and he's recognizing his position as a, like his powerful position in Hollywood at this time and uses Amblin as, as the means to, allow filmmakers that he enjoys to really get the chance to strut their stuff on a big mainstream stage which is just neat <laughs> <laughs> he just likes movies Spielberg likes movies I, I like what you do guy I'll, I'll give you some more money and a platform to do something else it's cool mm-hmm. ah Spielberg we like Spielberg what a guy <laughs> <laughs> spoilers <laughs> yeah. what gave that away and <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we've talked a little bit about the second gremlins movie um and to just kind of like round off the conversation a bit on like kind of t- touch upon the sort of legacy that the films had to this day and as sure as death taxes and richard donner mentioning lethal weapon 5 <laughs> and the goonies 2 you <laughs> you'll always hear zach galligan mention the fact that gremlins 3 is going to happen like i i've heard we've heard about it like i want to say for about the last 10 to 15 years (laughs) and while there is a animated uh prequel series in development uh called secrets of the mogwai um would you ever want to see a gremlin 3 come to fruition or do you think it's best to let sleeping mogwais lie (laughs) i want to see it but only if only if it's all practical effects if they go cgi Mm -hmm. I'm going to be mad about it. Not going to lie. <laughs> Takes away the magic and the charm of it, I think. So um, I think that's yeah. what it really does depend on, whether I'll, whether I'll really be a big fan and excited going into it or whether it will kind of be just, I'm going to watch it to see what it's like. But I'm probably not going to be as excited about it if it's CGI. Yeah. I think if it's the original creative team, if Joe Dante is behind the wheel still uh, and it, and it seems to have a reason for being if he's got i'd hope he'd have an axe to grind a satirical axe to grind again as opposed to it just mm. being um a corporation squeezing the juice out of an existing ip mm. that's that that's the dreaded scenario i think and it doesn't but... really sit right with with him and no kind of film no either like of, of any kind of film for that to happen to it just seems yeah. to it there's the point the whole point of it is that that wouldn't happen with gremlins so yeah mm-hmm. yeah no i agree i agree there. yeah what do you think andy um yeah i very much echo your sentiments and, and I, I i agree with what daisy just said there i, I do think it would be more of a it, it would hollow out more what the kind of franchise represents for me and, and particularly because like the second one is only came to be because dante called warner brothers bluff and just basically said <laughs> let me make the movie that I want to make. That's the only way I'm going to, I'm going to do it is if I make a movie that is essentially about taking, <laughs> taking the mick out of the the very idea of doing a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, and I, and I love that we have gremlins too for oh, that. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, not sure I need gremlins three, but I'll take a animated HBO max. Series. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Alrighty, that brings us to the end of our discussion of 1984's Gremlins. Uh, thank you very much for joining us again, Daisy. Um, it's been been a blast to have you, and I'd love to invite you back 
to discuss anything anything you want to talk about in the future in the Amblin realm you'll be welcome back anytime oh thank you so much it's been such a blast as well yeah like you say it's always nice to be talking about a film that I love rather than a film that I do (laughs) maybe not love so much (laughs) when we get to Viva Rock Rock Vegas you can come back and and I'm sure you'll have some stuff over syndrome by that point yeah I think I I might I mean if Claire's up for that I think as the Flintstones uh, (laughs) resident expert um, although she doesn't like that one um, I actually defended Rock Vegas um, because, like we said, the nostalgia element um, mm-hmm. always close to my heart. So. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of W-rated, where where can the good people find you and said podcast? So for me, you can find me at Daisy Vic Edwards on Twitter and Daisy Victoria Edwards on Instagram. And then for the pod, we're at, at W-rated pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Definitely give it a listen, guys. It's like that aforementioned discussion on Viva Rock Vegas <laughs> is very funny. Thank <laughs> you. I, I've I'd forgotten so many details about that movie. I'm so <laughs> glad like to just bring it to you, you guys them. without you having to go through the pain of watching it yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be we'll be there with you soon. Yeah, on, on that's it. true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I cannot wait. Um. Unfortunately, our next film is not Viva Rock Vegas quite yet. We've still got a few <laughs> few detours along the way. Uh, our next episode will be covering Kevin Reynolds' debut film, the 1985 film Fandango, starring a young Kevin Costner and Judd Nelson. Uh, this is another one of the Amblin group that I've like got little to no knowledge of. <laughs> yeah, me neither. One of those ones that was in the list, I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it, it's a road trip movie set in the seventies that like and it, that ticks a lot yeah. of boxes for me. So I'm looking forward to diving into that one and discovering it. Um, and if you'd like to discover it along with us and don't happen to have Fandango on DVD or Blu-ray, um, you can uh, rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chili, and Microsoft Store. Uh, if you happen to have seen it before, which I would be very surprised, but would welcome any responses that you might have to it. Please do tweet us at ramblinamblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. And while you're giving us a listen on your podcast provider, why not give us a little like and a subscribe? And you can write a review if you like as well. Who would never turn that away? (laughs) Yes. And uh, thank you all very much for listening once again. Uh, Thank you, Josh. It's always lovely to see you. Always a pleasure. And thanks again, Daisy, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, we'll see you next time for Kevin Reynolds' Fandango. Until then, I hope you all take care. Goodbye. <laughs>